Hey there, welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with y'all. My name is Robert. I am the Ministry Associate and Communications Director for Ministry State in Washington, D.C. Will's rolling his eyes at me because I added him another title. Uh, with me, as always, my very good friend, Will. Will, I haven't asked you this on the podcast in a while. I've, I've uh, gotten straight to the point and, and missed it. Will, how are you doing? How's yeah, life? Some, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Sometimes it's like, hey, I, I'm not just a mouth, you know, <laughs> a pair of lungs here. I'm a I'm a human being with emotions and feelings. And yeah, 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 uh, I'm good. I'm in, I'm in, uh, I think I've shared this, but I'm in my new apartment up here um, recording. Enjoyed the beautiful weather this weekend that we had in DC. It was amazing outside kind of have a cold snap that's come back, but yeah, doing all right. Have the Bible study tonight that I'm excited about. Uh, good to be back with people. Um, so yeah, not, not, uh, not a lot to report other than that. What about you? Oh, life's good, man. I also really enjoyed the weather. When uh, the first day that it cracked 70, did you not step outside and have that feeling like this is baseball weather? Yes, that is true. That is true. And there is a feeling of, uh, of just life in the air. It's like there's this surging on the winds of new life being brought in from, from the lands beyond. For sure. I, you know, uh, today was the, the big news that DC... Uh, is going to allow limited amount of fans at Nats Park for baseball season this year. I have a, a theory that if we didn't have the nice weather uh, before, if we didn't have the 70 degree weather where people were like really itching to be outside and, and enjoying a cold beer at the ballpark and it had remained cold and rainy, I don't know if we'd get that announcement. Um, as I have soon a, or ever? Ever. I think that, uh, I think that people are really anxious and want to be uh outside in the city doing stuff as, of course safely and, and socially distanced um but i think that warm weather was the catalyst man well we we can talk about this maybe offline or at another time but i mean as far as the pandemic goes it's still going on uh and yet unlike last year there are people all over lincoln park and walking around the city so there's there's yeah. that, but hopefully that continues. Hopefully we get people continue to want to be outside and interacting and fellowshipping, maybe get down to the wharf, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Navy yard, all that. For sure. Well, awesome. Well, we're, I'm definitely excited for springtime and, and getting into the summer into the city. It's always a fun place to be. So um, we'll be looking forward to that. Uh, we've got a great episode today. Uh, we're really excited to talk about a couple things, um, but I think most of it's going to be connected to a, a broader trend. Uh, that I think you and I have sort of been following and noticing a little bit. We've been texting with each other back and forth about it. Um, I I don't really have sort of like an official term for it, but I'll kind of just say, uh, generally speaking, the sort of democratizing trend uh, within uh, really what we're focusing on is sort of uh, small C conservative spaces, whether that be uh, particularly the church um, but other sort of uh, institutions, culturally, quote, quote, conservative institutions on the side. And sort of the thing that I think really brought this to my attention was that wild interview uh, between Oprah and uh, the royal couple, uh, Harry and Meghan. Um, Will, did you catch any of that interview? No, I didn't. I was aware of it. I read a couple articles on on both sides. I read one article that just lambasted them. Uh, and very intelligent article. Then I read another article. I think it was like Vanity Fair that was talking about the problems of of the royal family. So I got a little bit of of, of both, um, but I didn't actually 
tune in or I haven't even seen any of the eclipse. <laughs> yeah. The uh, um, it, it's, it's really interesting just because um, there is such an interest of the Royal family in America. And I think a lot of people uh, like, including my wife, like love following the news about the Royal family and, and what they're up to and what's going on. I think for a lot of Americans, it's kind of uh, flabbergasting just because that seems, you know, that seems to be something we've broken away from. We don't really have that tradition anymore. Uh, but one thing I have noticed is that um, the Royal family tends to uh, different, different members of the Royal family tend to attract uh, uh, fans from quote unquote, and I'm, I'm painting with a hu- very broad brush here, but sort which of, are the best brushes to paint with. I of mean, course, whoever wants to be listening to someone who is fine tooth combing to mix metaphors <laughs> point. No, no, no. Let's keep it. Broad. This is a podcast. This is for hot takes. This um, is, that's what we're about. Uh, you know, I think a lot of sort of more uh, liberally leaning folks find a lot of solace and uh, uh, comfort in people like Harry and Meghan and then sort of more conservative leaning people like um, uh, Kate and uh, what's her husband? William. William, of course. Duh. Uh, see, this is, this reveals my ignorance of all this stuff. And then the queen, obviously. Um, and I think for a lot of people, you know, it represents a, a very strong uh, historic institution that has predominantly been uh, more conservative. Uh, you can kind of see in, in the crown that Netflix series, the sort of the shift that's going on within the Royal family. But I think for the most part, it's been mostly uh, thought of as a pretty conservative institution. And I think um, what's interesting is to see uh, the new Royal couple really trying to break away from it in, in both literal senses, like not wanting to be partaking of a lot of the Royal duties, but at the same time, really trying to highlight, uh, quote unquote, the oppressive or the um, uncomfortableness that comes with being a part of a larger institution. Um, what, what was kind of your sense uh, surrounding that bigger trend or question with regards to this? Well, again, with the broad brush, let's also speak from ignorance, which is what I'll be doing here as I haven't seen it. But one of the things that uh, the highlights was Megan apparently wasn't aware how uh, formal her meeting of the queen was supposed to be. She was like, oh, it's my mother-in-law or soon to be mother-in-law. But then she interacted and was like, no, no, this is actually a very real royal engagement. And it reminded me of, maybe I've shared this before, but Sinclair Ferguson, uh, our favorite, was uh, had, an, had an audience with the queen. And he said, after he left, uh, he was talking, uh, you know, he was telling our st- uh, students about the experience. And this is probably, I don't know, 20 years ago or something, but he goes, you know, she really thinks she's the queen. And if she <laughs> weren't, you'd have to lock her up. And, and, and I think what he was, his point was that there was a regal quality that she had and everything that she does, she is the queen through and through. There is no breaking of character because it's not a character. It's, it's, it's how she embodies the role. So when Megan says that, it's like, oh, I think that super betrays the way in which a lot of Americans view these uh, institutions, especially view the royal family. We, we we don't really have the same categories of people who are under a monarchy of what it exactly means for there to be royalty. And just to not have that that category in one's head is, I think, pretty telling. To be yeah, honest, yeah, for sure. And I. I- what I kind of saw from it all was that 
there wasn't just this sense that, oh, okay, this particular royal is um, oppressive or uh, is stifling my individuality. It what really the commentary, and I don't. It, it was sort of the subtext of the interview, but it was really uh, explicit in the commentary. It was no, the the crown itself is oppressive. The idea of the fa- the royal family standing for something larger than the individual members within it, uh, that it that it does represent a certain solidarity of a national people, um, and that's sort of why the queen. And the royal family has often sort of tried to stay out of pretty political debates. Um, and I think there's a sense that uh, if, you know, a, a royal member can't strike out their own path, then therefore it's wrong and needs to be reformed. And I think that's interesting because for, for at least most of my uh, education, I've always thought of um, uh sort of quote unquote small C conservative minded people uh, resisting that that trend and being very tied to institutions and, rec- and recognizing uh, the importance of institutions. But now we're kind of seeing that same popularity or that same idea be popularized in all kinds of other sort of culturally conservative spaces. I mean, take, for example, um, a lot of the news coming out about uh, people like Jamar Tisby and Beth Moore, who have sort of made a uh, 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 made the, the the front pages of uh, things like the New York Times, celebrating their leave. I, I would I maybe that's not fair. I shouldn't say they themselves were celebrating because that's it, they did strike very somber tones about it. But this whole idea of sort of making a a, a, a showing of leaving a particular denomination. What did you think about when you saw well, some so of that fill, kind of stuff? Phyllis, and I know a little bit about this, but the Jamar Tisby leave loud and then Beth Moore's departure from the SBC, which there's been a lot written about it beyond uh, Thomas Kidd wrote a good article today in the gospel coalition about when you should leave your denomination. And, and, um, but explain, explain a little bit about the leave loud. And yeah. A little bit of background on Beth Moore. So there was a there was a podcast that went viral. Uh, I think it was last week um, uh, that Jamar Tesby did talking about. And if you don't know who Jamar Tesby is, he's the uh, author of Color of Compromise. He's been really uh, a leading figure in a lot of the um, racial reconciliation issues uh, regarding the church, and particularly within a reformed Christian context. And uh, he re- he recorded a, a pretty long podcast interview, giving his testimony of sort of growing up. Um, in reformed Christianity and it's in that space. Um, and eventually leading to his decision, uh, to ultimately kind of distance himself and leave it. And, um, I, I mean, I think everyone should listen to the interview. I think it's, it's really interesting and it's very, um, good to sort of get that perspective. Um, but the, the, the hashtag associated with it is leave loud, this idea of telling your story as you leave your denomination. And, you know, there are legitimate questions to have, um, especially with, within denominations, about uh, racial reconciliation, racial justice, issues like that. that there's, no, there's no denying that. I'm focusing more, though, on the question of um, leaving denominations. And Jamar Tisby is an example of this, but I think a, a, a probably the more popular uh, uh, example and case of this was Beth, was Beth Moore leaving the SBC. I mean, it got onto the front page of The New York Times. Um, and that I think that one has been really the catalyst for looking at this trend 
uh, within the quote unquote evangelical church. Right. And we should say it, why was the New York Times interested in putting this story on the front page? It doesn't seem that the New York Times has a deep doctrinal interest in the beliefs of the SBC or its leaders. So that doesn't seem to be actually what it's about. This is a, and I think it's just good for Christians to be aware of that, to like, to be able to hear, okay, what are people actually doing and what are people actually saying here? It's that the New York Times sees, uh, is aware that she is a vocal um, critic of Trump and is under the impression that she, left only because of her Trump support. And the truth is there are a number of issues for why Beth Moore chose to leave the SBC that is not only tied to uh, her, her criticisms of Trump. And, and I don't know at the beginning, uh, I haven't like totally followed the saga, but at the beginning, I think she made some really valid criticisms and concerns. I mean, there, we do need to speak up when someone who's running for office is accused of, of the things that he was accused of and has said the things that he has said. So that's fine. It, took on a life of its own, I think, eventually, as it continued. But with with the, you know, the leave loud thing, it just seems to lack a lot of discretion and discernment to me, there seems to be a real missing of um, uh, grace and humility, uh, when someone is so high handed about leaving and vocalizing their concern. And I would say, if it's in a Presbyterian context, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. I mean, I'm sure if someone's congregational, there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. Maybe it could be more vocal in that context for the, for if you're in a Presbyterian church, you, you're, you're, you know, interviewed by the elders and you're, uh, when you leave, you make a request to the elders. So I don't know why there needs to be such a, a loud vocalization when people depart. Well, so that's a, that's a good point because I, I really want to tackle to kind of get into the weeds of it. Um, what is church membership for? What is, what does it mean to be tied to a denomination and how should we think about ourselves as individuals within a church uh, sort of quote unquote covenant context? Because I think what a lot of this represents and, and um, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of, of obviously the case of like Beth Moore, but also, you know, every Easter we're approaching my, my, uh, sort of quote unquote favorite time of the year, which is when the New York times releases, uh, one of the most insane pieces about Easter. They always end up interviewing, uh, some super, uh, liberal theologian about the, the nature of Easter. And it, the interview is always the same. It always goes the same kind of thing. It always goes, um, uh, yes, this is what I believe about Jesus and, and the resurrection and the incarnation, blah, blah. But like, that's open to all kinds of different interpretations and whatever one really feels comfortable with and in, in, in that space. And, um, you know, the, kind of this really this idea of living within your own truth. And so um, I think what that ends up doing sort of that that broad spectrum of, of degrees is that it sort of reinforces. And I want to say it's probably a pretty American thing that church is essentially a collected organism of individuals and not a sort of comprehensive, cohesive thing itself. Is that something that you've ever experienced sort of growing up in a, a quote unquote American church? Well, growing up non-denominationally there, you have to make a pretty strong defense in non-denominational circles for church membership because it, it is a little, um, there is a lot of pushback, I think, among people to whether or not church membership itself is even legitimate. And then once you're in there, what, what am I committing myself to? What am I, um, 
whose who's authority and discipline am I coming under? I'll go back to the Thomas Kidd article because I think it's it's helpful. He's a fellow, he's an SBCer, he's a member of SBC Church, professor of history at Baylor. And he he basically makes a couple points where he says there there are a few reasons when it's legitimate to leave one's denomination. And it's like basically if there's direct heresy that is being adopted by that denomination. And he makes a distinction, it's not just parts of the denomination, because that one of the things that exists in denominations, like for the PCA, for example, is a push and pull, you know, a tug of war. You have different ideas. And the reason we have general assembly and you have sessions and presbyteries is to work these things out. There will inevitably be disagreements on hopefully secondary and so on matters, but not just on the primary thing. So his point is you stay in a church unless there's some abandonment of orthodoxy or some active teaching of heresy, then you leave. And then he also points out one of the problems with leaving a denomination is that when you, or when you leave a denomination, you leave the congregation as well, which leaves the local body of which you're a part. And that should actually be something that we really, really think about um, and encourage us, I think, to not, to neither enter into church membership lightly, although it should be entered into, and nor to leave church membership lightly and not to leave over secondary tertiary issues um, that, that are present. And I, um, so I, I thought he offered some really helpful kind of guidelines and considerations for people where, you know, we'll talk about this in a minute, I think, uh, but is, is leaving your denomination pretty American. I'd say what's more America is never joining a denomination. (laughs) I think the other is this, this deconstructing one's faith phenomenon that's happening that the gospel coalition is actually putting out a book on soon to kind of help stem that tide, hopefully somewhat. But yeah, I think that the, uh, the idea of being a covenant community is not nearly as prominent when you I would say probably go west of the Mississippi in a lot of ways <laughs> because it is more, it, it was built by, by individuals. Like it was built by people who set out on their own and not completely on their own, of course, because they were with a, a wagon train, but um, there's a pretty individual spirit that takes place out here. So that was, that's the roots of a lot of Christianity, I think. Uh, and that is spread back east of the Mississippi. No, I, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I, speaking from my own personal experience, like um, when I think about members leaving, you know, my own local church context, you know, I remember uh, when my son was baptized and the church swore an oath to help catechize and train up this child in the faith, you know, obviously not in sort of a, a socialistic sort of way, but in a, in a very covenant context sort of way. Um and so I don't, I don't know if, if I'm alone in this, but like when I see members, we have a little thing when, when people do end up moving away or, or um, uh, leaving the church, we have a little uh, sort of ritual where they come up on, on the stage and uh, they're present with the pastor uh, as he does the benediction. And often the first thought I have is like, oh no, that person taught Sunday school. Like that's a, that's a loss for our church. Like that's going to hurt us. Or I think, um, oh yeah, so-and-so was always at men's, uh, events and I really appreciated his perspective on these topics that we used to talk about. Like, I'm going to miss that, that it, this idea that our iron sharpens iron, this, um, notion that we are, um, bound together in, in service to our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when, when members leave that there's a real hole. And I wonder, uh, if, if 
that's often at the mind. I'm not, I, you know, I'm not trying to say that when people leave denominations, it's usually for superficial or, or they're not really thinking about it. Cause I, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think we, we tend to uh, not see it as, as big an issue as it maybe is. Um, at least as big an issue that maybe doesn't warrant some of the reasons why people do end up leaving churches. Um, I mean, church shopping is a thing that everyone knows about and, and has experienced uh, to some degree. And not that it's always wrong, but, um, you know, there is something about being really rooted in a local church context uh, that being really tied together and bound together would, would leave you to think that I should only really leave this church for really serious reasons. Um, and I, I think that that's definitely something uh, that we're sort of missing in some of these conversations. You, you touched on a point that I want to go into next, which is deconstructing, because this has been such a popular term uh, in recent months and, and maybe over the last you know couple of years. Uh, yes, to sort of start the conversation, when, when somebody uses the term deconstructing, what kind of what are the first things that come to your mind? Well, well, first things that come to my mind is, well, uh, I studied philosophy in college, so I have a prestigious bachelor in arts, <laughs> uh, bachelor of arts in philosophy. Was well, the is the the writings of Jacques Derrida? The oh yes, of course, him. He's uh, very prominent continental philosopher in France in the in the twentieth and twenty first century, and he kind of coined the term deconstruction. And this philosophy that goes with it, and it is a hermeneutical philosophy. It is a way to interpret texts. It is a way to approach areas of metaphysics and epistemology, the study of knowledge and understanding. One of the things that is maybe a very succinct way to understand deconstruction, at least of what comes to my head and what he means when he says it, is that the goal of deconstructing a text or truth, or a meeting, or a set of belief, is to promote the infinite deferral of meaning. The infinite deferral of meaning. And what he's saying is, is that the goal of deconstruction within the system, at least in the way that it was designed by the, by the French philosopher and the school that goes with it, and I would say is inherent to the system of deconstruction itself, which we'll probably talk about in a second, is I don't think Christians are aware of it when they when they get into it. I don't think they're aware that like deconstruction is not about reconstruction. That's not why you deconstruct anything. You deconstruct it because you want to continue to kick the can down the road of what something means for that appropriate time. You read a text and say, well, I think it means this. It's like, well, how do you know? Well, I, I don't, I, this is just, here's kind of what I think. And so you then challenge that and you like move a little further and you move and the meaning is never actually arrived at. It is deferred constantly and consistently and there's a within that Derrida loved the idea of play the idea of playing with language you just kind of have fun and it's a gleeful we've used this before but it's almost a nihilistic way of approaching interpretation understanding the goal is not to come to some bedrock hard firm foundation of something but to just create whims whimsically to kind of make it up to to have something say whatever I said, because none of us, uh, because there is no transcendent meeting in Der Der Derrida's world, there is no ultimate meeting. There's just really misunderstanding after misunderstanding. And there's more we could say about, you know, his philosophical debates that he had with like Gadamer, who's the German side of this, but he's not a deconstruction guy. Um, 
but the, the, the point is the point that deconstruction philosophically speaking is about that taking apart. Yeah. So I think, and push back on me if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding and I, I'm going to try to sort of speak about it in sort of lay terms. Cause that's all I know. I'm not, a, I don't have a prestigious bachelor's degree in, in philosophy like you. So please bear with me. But um, I think, I think when Christians hear reconstruction or sorry, not reconstruction, deconstruction, they interpret that through the sort of biblical notion of purifying this idea that deconstructing is sort of stripping away the extra stuff that uh, is not um, uh, the core or the real well, I think there's probably people who have read Derrida and the other deconstruction postmodern people and have said, hey, we can use this. I don't know if they're right, though. I actually don't think that's what it is. Like deconstruction, again, philosophically is not the same thing you're describing. What you're describing is removal of extraneous. It's disambiguation in a way. It's it's clarifying. It's it's refinement. But it's deconstructing is not just getting it like the, you know, the 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 unnecessary appendixes of things it's it's striking at the vitals uh it's not content with just the peripheral in that way so i don't think that when scholars are actually talking about deconstruction when the people who are who are the sources of this conversation who are like the reason that we're having this conversation about deconstruction they're not using it in that way say okay gotcha that makes sense um i i think one thing that that quote unquote Christians have, I don't know what I keep saying. One thing I don't know uh, that evangelicals really understand um, is that in order to adopt a deconstructionist view and to adopt that language, we have to have sort of solid agreement on, well, where's the line? Because if, if these French philosophers uh, abandoned the transcendent, uh, transcendent meaning, Christians can't do that. Obviously we would all, we would all have to agree that there is objective meaning, there is transcendent meaning. Um, but then the question really becomes, well, what is it? And I think one thing that you're seeing a lot, a, a lot of is that uh, Christians more and more willing to cross that line. And so this is, this is evident in extreme cases, right? So like <laughs> a video that went viral uh, and ruined my day the other day uh, was this uh, priest who um, uh, exegeted uh uh, the story of the Seraphonician woman uh, as a story of, of, of her talking power to Jesus and his racism, right? So that's an example of like deconstructing uh, the divinity of Christ in such a way as that you've abandoned any reasonable understanding of, of scripture and, and who Jesus was. Uh, and so I, I think, but I think it can manifest itself in less uh, quote unquote extreme ways um, in things like uh, how we view our connection to the church in the larger body of Christ. I mean, is that fair to say? Let's try to rethink and reinvent the wheel. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, this sort of idea of like, oh, current church structures, what if they're not really a product of sound exegesis, but really a product of colonialism or or white supremacy or all these other things? I mean, at some point, we have to uh, agree about certain objective standards. Um, and to me, I think one of the problems of doing that within an American uh, 21st century context is that it's almost an impossible ask of people. 
because there's there's this very democratizing trend that says what really is important is my personal individual thoughts, feelings, emotions. Um, and I, you know, I'm not trying to be uncharitable to people. I'm not trying to suggest that like, you know, uh, someone like a Beth Moore is, you know, a, a raging individualist because I don't think that's true or that's how I don't think that's how she would self-describe herself. But I do worry about this sort of creeping trend towards thinking of ourselves as more as individuals and less as uh, members, distinct members of a body of Christ. Yeah, it's in a lot of ways, it is the question or issue or problem of where do I receive truth? And um, is there a right way to think about truth? And I, something I've been thinking about recently, and this is an interesting American, and this I'll pick on the conservative side of things, but in the conservative evangelical world, you get a lot of people who will say, you know, this is what my Bible says to me. I sat down and I sat down with me and Jesus this morning in my cup of coffee. And I looked at it and I was like, this is, this is exactly what Jesus said to me. Careful. Will. you almost went into a Southern accent there. Well, that's where most of them are coming from. That's where I'm from <laughs> as well. So I'll just say that is the case. Look, we should have quiet times. Yes. But we, we are part of a fellowship of believers and there comes a big problem when it's Jesus and me. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to decide what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus means, which has strong president for like 400 years in American history. Uh, we can maybe talk about another point. Um, so there's this idea of you sit, you sit down and it's read your Bible and I'm going to come up with what it means. And generally speaking that the, the more conservative evangelical is totally okay with that. But if you come up and you say, well, you know, I think I, I'm kind of, I don't read the constitution that way. Like, I don't really think that's how it, how it should be read. That, that same group will flip out. How dare you not be an originalist? How dare you not hold the constant? And look, I probably consider myself an originalist, but at the same time, I also think there's a correct way to interpret scripture. And so what is going on here where we are content with uh, holding fast on these secondary important documents, not this primary one? problem with more of the progressive Christianity, if you can even call it that. Jay Gresham Machen would not have called liberalism Christianity. He would put it as a foe of Christianity, which I think he's right to do, just doesn't believe the Bible at all. So, I mean, I, I don't, you know, there's that. But there is a real problem when we're not recognize ourselves as part of a communion in, in how we interpret and assess what is true and right. No, I think that's totally right. And I think that, um, to get to sort of the, the pastoral side of this question, right? Like we need to recognize that it's really hard. Um, uh, I, I was born and raised in America. I get the impulse, the uh, resistance to, uh, you know, for a lack of a better term, collectivist uh, mindsets or, you know, um, seeing ourselves as parts of larger organizations and institutions and organisms that, really do matter more in a sense, uh, and giving ourselves to those things. I get that impulse to resist that, to, to want to be much more individualistic, to have my cake and eat it too, to, to be, uh, uh, to struggle with that. And I think as, as we approach this, this question now pastorally, right. What do we say to folks, um, either the sort of uh, liberal, liberally minded Christian who 
resists and chafes at orthodoxy and inerrancy or, or you know, things of that nature. Um, and then the conservative minded Christian who uh, really likes, you know, personal quiet time, personal time with Jesus. And he, te- and, you know, he tells me what to do. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need to hear from uh, other people uh, about what that, what that might be. I mean, how do we approach this question as pastors and, and counsel people through it? See, this is why I appreciate my Catholic friends because their answer is very easily submit, repent and submit to the Pope. Um, it's sort of like the default response. Um, but I think Protestants have a tougher time with this question because uh, of our history and our tradition. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to how do we respond to people pastorally in these ways, and I think as friends, when we respond friendly to people who might be struggling, um, because interesting, I think both of them, both sides here have issue with respecting the orthodoxy of the church and our place under it. And um, I think, you know, when we're honest and we recognize our sinful fallenness and our struggle to interpret things correctly, and I'm just talking about texts, but I mean, just events, like when we just look at our life, be like, man, I totally misread that situation. We come to a place of much greater benefit and hope and strength when we can appeal to men and women who have gone before us who are smarter, better, more astute, wiser than us in interpreting the text. And I think what we need to realize also here, I think there's a phrase, there's a fear that if we do just appeal to tradition, that we we actually don't have any freedom. And that I just kind of have to put myself into this like I have to be like turned into stone, basically, that there's no movement there. And I think that the idea of orthodoxy, the idea of a right system of belief, of being a part of a community of believers, is that that actually frees us more to live and apply that in a particular context. And that's where wisdom comes in. Like Wisdom is this incredibly like flexible, molly, like thing that just works differently, different concepts. And that's what we need in so much life. So we have these truths then that do exist, that are real for us, that we do need to get at, that we're reliant on for other people, like, like everything else in life. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my dad, who's been doing some teaching uh, at Alito and like, he was talking about the elementary school, um, like mantra that they have every day. It's like something like, I am special. I am great. I am independent. Well, What's funny about that to me is that Alito is known for being a powerhouse high school football team, 10 times state championship, right? Winning his program or most state championships in Texas state history, which is a big deal. Coach Buck, the head football coach would never let his team say that there is no way that in the locker room before a big game, he would say, Hey, who are you? I am individual. Who are you? I am unique. He would that's not how he coaches because he knows that you don't win anything that way. You don't achieve anything and you fall apart and people want to show off for themselves. People want to make sure that they're the center of attention. So there's like a, like a painful, almost dark irony there that you, that we're teaching these kids when the reality is like no thinking institution or team operates that way if they want to succeed. Yes. I think you're exactly right. I think another thing that comes to mind is uh, I don't know if anyone's ever had this experience. It's like, you know, I want to learn about uh, uh, 1960s films. Let's just say that, for example. Uh, well, if I'm on my if I'm on my own, and I, I reject, 
any sort of uh, institutions or institutional knowledge or prior consensus on anything. You know, I'm very well to go off and pick, you know, 10 random movies that were made in the 1960s and draw my own conclusions about, you know, what film was like back then and what the what artists were trying to do and blah, blah. But in many ways, sort of setting yourself in front of that kind of topic or, you know, any kind of learning endeavor is terrifying because you're stuck in the void and you have no idea what to do and how to move forward. You're kind of stuck as opposed to like taking an online course or finding a syllabus online, right? You, you That direction, that order actually is in your, what, how you said it, which is so great is freeing um, because you can actually trust that you're, you're sort of within the mainstream of, of where this, um, this thought is. And you can, you're much more free to sort of make intelligent and uh, helpful observations, critiques, what have you. Um, and I think that's really important. I mean, there's this, there's this j- sort of popular notion that, oh, if you are bound to uh, orthodoxy, tradition, denominationalism, blah, 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 um, then you're really restricted and you're, you're liable for group, group thinking and uh, perpetuating all hordes, all kinds of abuses that uh, you, you need uh, leaders to step up and do. But in, in reality, um, organizations that, that are very um, uh, mindful of the traditions that have been handed down to them and, and to trust them uh, can actually do a much better job of critiquing um, and pointing out flaws and, and ways that they can be contextualized or adapted to, to meet certain circumstances. So I think that's a really well, well said point. Yeah, and it, it goes down to, look, like we said before, institutions don't save anyone. Institutions don't keep people from sin. They are part of the wise and good ordering, I think, of what of the world God has made. Um, and it also is an acknowledgement of our anthropology and that we are defined and exist in relation to other things. Uh, my identity, the identity of everybody is not just in and of themselves. It is, in fact, in relation to the creator. That is our first identification. We are essentially relational beings. And we need to understand that. We need to make sure that we, you know, even from the womb, I mean, this is, you know, important embryology. The, the, the embryo is not a part of the mother, but it is in relation to the mother as it is, as it is growing. And that's, that's actually a helpful, I think, analogy and way to think about this. But as we're coming to the end here, as we're running out of time, we haven't even discussed Jamie Smith, who I think is another example of this as he keeps kind of doing whatever he's going to do. Just another, I think another disappointment uh, Hmm. as well. Yeah. I think that would be an interesting thing to talk about in light of also uh, recent um, news stories about the Pope and uh, the the Catholic church uh, doubling down on its um, Orthodox uh, belief about marriage and sexuality um, and sort of the pushback that it got from that. So maybe we'll have to save that for another time, but I, I think it's related to this conversation. Um, and would be really helpful to discuss, but we are running out of time. However, before we go, I can't deny the fact that it is my favorite time of the year. It's March Madness. Uh, we're big sports guys on this podcast that everybody knows this, but you were speaking of teams and my mind immediately went to uh, the upcoming NCAA tournament. Uh, Ministry to State is uh, actually hosting a bracket competition. Uh, if you get our Tuesday devotional, uh, you would have seen the information for this morning, but I will actually post a link. Uh, to the competition uh, through CBS through CBS Sports on this or in the show notes, and you can use password ministry the number two state uh, to enter. 
Um, so that'll be really fun. Will, who's your, who's your final four? Do you have one yet? Have you done your bracket? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't done my, my bracket, but I'm feeling really, I'm feeling really bullish. Um, about, uh, trying to think of a low seed. I have no idea. I, I, <laughs> I haven't paid attention to any of this. Well, your Texas A&M Aggies are not in the tournament. And so you, you would have to either be forced to root for Bro, the Baylor Bears. Kentucky. What? I noticed Kentucky wasn't, wasn't in. Yeah, first, first year that Kentucky and Duke are not in the tournament since who knows when. I know. Incredible. In, incredible. Yeah, and you can't root for the Baylor Bears, the Raiders, or the Longhorns. I mean, as an Aggie, there's no I, way, right? I would sooner die <laughs> than root for any of them. Well, if I anyone cares. root for Tech, it would, it would be Tech and then Baylor and then lastly, UT. I mean, something cataclysmic would have to happen for me to root for Texas in anything. Maybe you can root for uh, Abilene Christian as they are taking on the Longhorns in the first round. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know that. Uh, Church of That's Christ, hilarious. Man, I don't know if I can, I can support that. Nice. I like how you moved into your Texas accent there. Right. right, uh, right. If anyone cares, my final four is uh, Gonzaga, Ohio State, Illinois, and I'm so sorry, Will, the Texas Longhorns. But... That's okay. I know you'll forgive me. They didn't even, they didn't even legitimately win their conference. They won the tournament. It's fine. Um, but yeah, okay. as again, again, COVID mishap again, uh, you can uh, enter our bracket competition. It'd be super fun uh, to see you guys par- partake in that. Um, well, Will, thanks again for this awesome conversation. I think you had some great stuff. I'm, I really appreciate you enlightening us about a lot of the, uh, the French, uh, philosophy behind a lot of deconstructing that i learned a lot today in our conversation well you should thank dr george dr austin <laughs> dr hand wonderful people yes dr. big Garcia, props to them great man big props to them um, but thank you again for listening to the will and rob show as always uh you can follow us on twitter i'm at rd hassler will is at stockdale will make sure to check out ministrystate.org um, and with that we will see you guys again next week